Hey, good morning, Northeast. Whether you're in the room or worshiping with us online, it is great to have you with us. Grab your Bible, turn with me to the book of James. We are in the midst of a series on the book of James. And today, James wants to talk to us about playing favorites. Playing favorites. We all have our favorite things, right? Our, our favorites. Uh, you may have your favorite pair of jeans. When you want to feel good, look good, they're your go-to jeans. Maybe, no judgment here, maybe you have your favorite favorite pair of comfy pants, right? When you ditch the jeans and you get home. Uh, maybe your favorite pair of kicks, your favorite pair of sneaks. Uh, they, they just feel good. You run better in them. You work out better in them. You lift more in them. Uh, we all have our favorite food, our favorite guilty pleasure, our favorite restaurant with our favorite salsa, right? Because there's always that one has the best. There's the first amen of the, of the Sunday, and it was related to salsa. We are in San Antonio, indeed. Um, you, you may have your favorite team, your favorite color. Uh, some pastors have their favorite service. Maybe you have a favorite kid, right? Whatever it is, we have our favorites. We have this one that stands out from the rest, and, and, and we, we love it more, we lean to it more, we go to it more, we prefer it more. And, and while it's great and fine to have preferences because we're, we all have unique tastes uh, and unique personalities, while it's one thing to have a, a unique taste and personality that lends itself towards a, a particular product, what we're going to see today is that the gospel says when it comes to the gospel, we're not to have any partiality towards people. As followers of Jesus, we don't get to play favorites. We don't get to pick and choose who we love or who we show grace to. As followers of Jesus, when it comes to the gospel, we're called to love our neighbor, every neighbor. And as we'll see, we don't get to pick who is our neighbor this is precisely where James takes us as we head into chapter 2. In, in the series, we've been talking uh, through the theme of James that he keeps coming back to. The theme is to be steadfast in the midst of struggle, in the midst of trial. And he be, began, he opened the letter with this whole notion of count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. I want you to hold fast to your faith, even when you're struggling. And then he goes into temptation. When you're tempted, when you're struggling through temptation, hold fast. And then don't just consider yourself a hearer of the word only, but also a doer. Hold fast, not just to the commands you prefer, but to all of them. And do what you've been called to do. But then he summarizes, he ends it at the end of chapter 1, saying that true religion, to really hold fast to Jesus and to show true religion, is to care for orphans and, and widows in their affliction. And James, knowing our hearts, Knowing that we're partial to some people, then dives in to talk about that partiality. Knowing that in this call to care for the disadvantaged and the poor, that we would rather run to the celebrity, James says, hey, let's, let's talk about playing favorites. Pick it up with me, chapter 2, verse 1. James 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But have you not dishonored the poor man? Are not the rich ones, or are not the rich the ones who oppress you and, and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You were doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James dives right in. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't waste any time. He says, show no partiality as you hold the faith. This again points to his driving concern in the letter, that we hold to the faith. He's writing to a church that's being persecuted by Rome. He wants them to hold to the faith. There is trial, there is tribulation. I want you to hold to the faith. You're on the struggle bus today. You're not feeling Jesus' blessing today. Hold to the faith. This is the theme of the book. Stay steadfast, stay true. I want to see your maturity in bloom, not wavering, not wilting, just because it's hard. I want to see you hold to the faith, no matter what, and also no matter who. No matter who you're in front of, I want to see you hold to the faith. I don't want to see you have stronger faith and more mature faith when you're with someone that you like versus someone you don't. Someone who looks like you versus someone who doesn't. I want you to hold to the faith. In this sentence, he says, show no partiality. Your translation, especially if you're reading the NIV, might read uh, favoritism, show no favoritism. It's really to prefer one thing over another. In verse 4, he breaks it out a little differently. He says it's to make distinctions among yourselves. Partiality is to make distinctions that one thing is better than another, or one thing is more valuable than another. You may think, it's not that I treat people poorly, no, it might just be that you think one life or one, one person has more to offer you than another. And so you're more favorable to them because they have more to offer to you. But he says, make no distinction, no, show no partiality towards one another, meaning don't make any distinctions based on what you see on the surface. If someone is well-dressed and well-kept, you might be Tempted to think that they are of good character versus someone who's wearing baggy clothes or has ink all over them and think, well, you've made some bad life decisions. 
So no, 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 no. We don't look at the outward appearance and then judge their character. I want you to show no partiality. And notice he's not mincing words here. He's not saying, hey, you can be partial to this, but if they're a knucklehead and they've done that, then, you know, I mean, of course, look at them. No, he's saying, there's no latitude here. Show no partiality. Don't, don't even think about it. Don't, don't let it creep into your heart at all. There's to be none in you. And his example then that he offers in verse 2 is, if a man comes in wearing gold and fine clothing, and you say to him, here, have this good seat, but right after him comes someone who's poor wearing shabby clothing, you say, hey, I want you to sit here. He's saying, is this not making distinctions among yourselves? We're making distinctions based on what we've seen instead of of the heart, which of course we can't see, and so we'll judge the heart based on the dress. You may say, well, I I would never do that. I would never do that to the person coming in, that they're they're rich, and so I'd I'd, make space for them in my row, but not somebody else. I, I would never do that. We're good people here, but it's easier than you think. And just consider for a moment. So we're, we're in San Antonio, right? San Antonio's a one-town team. When someone cuts us, we bleed black and silver, right? We bleed spurs. So let's imagine for a moment that one Sunday morning, David Robinson, the admiral, comes to church. David Robinson's an icon in, sport, in sports, and Spurs history in particular, right? One of the greatest centers that the Spurs have ever had. Helped us win two of our five championship rings. David Robinson isn't just an icon for that, though. He's an icon in the Christian community because he's a man of deep faith, and he's done so much good for so many people. So let's imagine that he decides, hey, I'm, you know, I'm looking for some, some new preaching, a new church, and I've heard good things about Northeast, and of course, why wouldn't he hear good things? Look at you guys. And so he comes in, and all seven foot one of him comes in the door, and everyone's like, David Robinson, the admiral is here. Let's imagine he comes to this service, though, and this service, packed out as it often is with people in the lobby, as there often are, sorry, guys. And let's imagine that there, there's no room in here, and, and yet our ushers notice, but David Robinson has come to church, and this is San Antonio, and we bleed black and silver. So what do we do? We want David Robinson to have a good first experience at Northeast. So what do we do? We, we sneak into the auditorium, we find a regular, and we go up to the regular, like, hey, would you give up your seat? I'm not, no, I'm not going to give up my seat. Yeah, but, it, but it's David Robinson. Oh, yeah, I'll give up my seat to David Robinson. And then we would go, and at lunch, we would brag. Yeah, I gave up my seat to David Robinson. Did, have you ever given up your seat to David Robinson? I didn't think so. I gave up my seat to David Robinson, right? We would do that for David Robinson. But let's imagine that after David Robinson comes in, right on the heels of David Robinson comes Joe Stevenson. You're like, well, who's Joe Stevenson? Exactly. We have no idea who Joe is. Joe Dirt, for all we know, because he comes in and it doesn't look like he's ever met a hairbrush. And it's the same service, and it's the same crowd, and it's the same seating issue. And there's people in the lobby with easy access to seats, and we could just pull out a seat to grab it and offer it to Joe. And would we not? Yeah, we would offer it to Joe, but would we ask someone inside the room to move so that Joe Stevenson could have the same experience as David Robinson? And after church, we would want to show David Robinson around all our facilities, and we'd walk him through kids' ministry, and we'd talk about how great our people are. But Joe Stevenson, looking a little bit 
more like perhaps he's homeless, would you walk him through the children's ministry? Would you take someone who looked like that near your children? James says, show no partiality. None. Treat Joe as well as you would treat the admiral. And when he comes in, you make no judgment about what he's wearing or what he's done. Showing partiality is easy to do. We do it more than you think. We do it in the checkout line at the grocery store when we see the family in front of us and how they're dressed and how they're talking to each other and the items that they're putting in their cart that they're going to feed their children. And we treat them different than those who look like us and eat like us and live in the places that we live. James is very clear about this activity. He doesn't mince words. He says in verse 4 that when we do this, we become judges with what? Judges with what? I'm going to make you talk to me this weekend. Evil. Evil thoughts. He doesn't say, hey, this is uncouth of a Christian. He doesn't say this is in poor taste of a follower of Jesus. He says, if you do this, you have an evil heart. I don't know how to say it stronger than that. And I don't think it needs to be said stronger than that because James just like pulled out the paddle. Like when you show favoritism because of how someone is dressed, he says you have become a judge with an evil heart, having in you evil thoughts. And when you treat a soccer mom in a minivan with small children better than you treat a day worker in a panel van, you become a judge with evil in your heart. When you treat a group of white kids hanging in your neighborhood, all wearing skinny jeans one way, but a group of brown kids wearing baggy jeans hanging out in your neighborhood another way, you would become judges with evil thoughts. Not because you know the content of their character, but because how they look displeases you. Why? Why does James call it evil? He breaks it down for us in verses 5 or 6. He doesn't leave us guessing. He says, listen, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? But, verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Say, so you... You, you look down on the poor, but what did Jesus say about the poor? James, again, throughout his entire letter, is reflecting on the words of his brother Jesus, particularly the words of the, from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, but, but you look down on them, and, and you're favorable to, to the wealthy, the rich, and yet they got there by being unfavorable to you, by being unfavorable in their business practices. And, and you want to celebrate that, and you want to be near that, and you want to be like that. And you've dishonored the poor. James is calling into question our hearts and our motives. Think, think just for a moment. 
about the people around Jesus. Who were the people around Jesus? Who, who were the people that, that Jesus attracted to himself, that came in, in droves to gather around Jesus? Who, who were they? Tell me, who were they? Sinners. Who else? The sick. The sick. The poor. The what? The tax collectors. The tax collectors. Yeah, the, all the IRS agents, and not the good ones, the shady ones. The ones that were taking extra off the top for themselves. He called the, the zealots, they were, they were political rivals from the tax collectors. He, he called children to, to, to come. And the disciples are like, no, 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 it's teaching time. Send the kids up to the playroom so that we can have an orderly uh, adult conversation about the gospel. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you're not going to send the children away from me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And that there's partiality in this circle because on the fringe you have Pharisees, the self-righteous looking in. Nearest to Jesus, clamoring towards him are the sick, and yet there's partiality even among the sick, because you have some who are sick with like disease, and some who are sick with like oppression or demons, and then you have the lepers, and the sick people don't even want to be around the lepers. There's division even among the sick. There's partiality among the sick. Well, I, I, I'm bleeding, but I'm not, I'm not, not leprous. These are the people that Jesus longed to come to him. They became his followers. They became his supporters of ministry. They are the women who weeped tears over his feet to wash them before he died. And when others questioned it, Jesus said, you leave her alone. Because for thousands of years, people will be talking about her. While you showed partiality and had judgment in your heart. That one such as her would touch me. We don't often consider who Jesus loved and who he hung out with in the real picture that it was. And instead, we view through a different lens, the lens of flesh. We notice what people wear, and we want to be around them as a result. And yet, what is God's heart? Consider God's heart, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? The Lord looks at the heart. God didn't see you wearing what you wear and say, you know what? I could do something with that life. You know what? I could do something with that heart. I can do something. You're, you're showing some, you know, some resolve. I, I could tell you want to change. God, God didn't look at us by the outward appearance. It said that he looked at our heart. And what did he see in our heart? The... the this is another opportunity for engagement. What did he see when he looked in our heart? Sin. Yeah. He saw sin, and he loved us still. James' words are stark. God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. And the point here being, if these are the people that God has chosen, then any kind of favoritism contradicts the gospel. Favoritism contradicts the gospel. This is James' point. I want you to hold true to the faith. Don't show partiality because partiality is not holding true to the gospel. Partiality is a contradiction of the gospel. Favoritism is a contradiction to the gospel. If God loves and dwells with the poor, we should too. 
If God looks at the heart instead of the clothing, we should too. Here's the problem, though. Here's the problem. In our thinking, because of the lens through which we view life, we think if God could just get a celebrity endorsement, then how many more people would come to Jesus? I mean, if God just got a hold of Tom Cruise's life, just think of the people then that would hear about Jesus and want to be near Jesus. If Tom, if, if Tom Cruise came to faith, and maybe God could get a hold of Elon Musk, right? Then, then we could have the tech sector. And if you get the tech sector, then we could influence everything, right? Like if, if Elon Musk came to faith, how many more people would hear the gospel? How much better would that be? It would really put Christianity on the map, and then people, my neighbors, wouldn't look at me like I'm the freak. They'd be like, yeah, I want to be, be a freak like you. And what does this thinking suggest? That Jesus would be better if he just had the endorsement of someone famous. That the gospel needs what Jesus needs. What our faith in these trying times needs is an endorsement. I think what James would push back on and say is the endorsement of Jesus himself not enough. And as the poor who have run to Jesus, are they less notable for their endorsement of Jesus? Does that make Jesus less true that the poor be rich in faith? And it becomes more true, Jesus becomes more true that the wealthy love him? Does this really measure and change the gospel? See, we view through the wrong lens. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 to 28, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world. He's writing about us, the church, by the way. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul systematically basically just tells the entire believing church that he's writing to in Corinth, y'all are nothing. Don't boast. And yet he's using you to make something of himself. God doesn't need a celebrity endorsement. He sent us Jesus and Jesus, seeing nothing in us, still came and bled and died for us. That is the gospel. A gospel that's willing to bleed and die for others, no matter what. If these are the people that God has chosen and the way that he has done it, then this is how we are too as well. But James continues, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Just stop there with me. James continues to press in. He says, if you really fulfill the law, I kind of put emphasis on that, if you really fulfill the law, because remember what he was talking about in chapter one, to be a hearer, not a hearer only, but also a doer, right? 
So he's saying, hey, if you really want to fulfill the law, if you're really committed to being a doer of the word, not just a hearer of it, and you're really committed to fulfilling the law, then love your neighbor. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're a sinner. So he says, if you really want to be a doer, then love your neighbor as yourself. Love every neighbor as yourself. We go back again to the words of Jesus, right? He's conjuring up the words of Jesus. In this dialogue, when Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? Does Jesus give us permission to define who our neighbor is? No. Jesus doesn't give us permission to define who our neighbor is. God has defined it for us already. Whomever has his life in his bones, God's life, God's breath in them, he's your neighbor. Whoever bears the image of God and is around you in that moment, that's your neighbor. We have some neighbors that we live next to. We have some neighbors that we work with. We have some neighbors that we're driving near temporarily. And God would say, Drew, don't drive angry. Love your neighbor as yourself. James gives an argument here. The reason that we have to do this, love your neighbor as yourself, love without distinction, is because if we ignore this, we break the whole law, not just one part. I think the argument that, that's seemingly happening in this church is that they were feeling good about themselves for loving some of the people. And James is like, yeah, but you're failing because you're not loving all of the people. I'm trying to pull that out and, and draw your attention to this. You can't just love some of the people and still be fulfilling the law because if you break one part of the law, you've broken the whole law. So he gives this argument, this illustration, that all of the law is connected and, and you cannot, as he says in verses uh, 10 and 11 here, you cannot say, like, do not commit adultery, but also do not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've broken the whole law. You can't pick and choose the laws you want to follow. And yet, how often in the church and in our psyche do we kind of judge and grade the law of God? Like, you've broken that one, and so, ooh, so sorry. But here's your penalty. You've broken that one. Oh, okay. Whew. Good thing that was a small law. He says, no, 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 we don't get to make that distinction. You break one, you break it all. A few years ago, my son was out back uh, playing with a soccer ball, kicking a soccer ball, which is always great to do in the backyard near our windows. And, and of course, in this particular occasion, he kicked the ball, careened off of something, and hit a window. And I'm inside, and I just hear that sound that no father ever wants to hear on a Saturday, right? The sound of crashing glass. Run outside, and my son, of course, is just like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And, and as we begin to talk it through, I'm looking at the window, and I'm pulling two things up instantly in my mind, right? Like, how much do I have in the bank account? Like, how, how bad is this going to hurt? And then also, I'm also pulling up, like, my internal weather map. Like, what's the weather going to do today? Because on a Saturday, I'm not so sure that this is going to get fixed quickly. And it just so happened that there was rain in the forecast, and in that minute, seeing all of the panic, and I'm trying to calm myself and control my breathing in front of my son, like, he's going into the, the typical mode that our kids go into, right? Like, trying to explain away how bad this really is. And he's like, but dad, 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 like, I'm so, so sorry, so, so sorry, but, 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 but look, look, I only broke the bottom corner of the window. Like, the, 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 the top is still good. 
And I only broke the corner. Like, there's just a crack at the bottom, and it's just a little bit there. But the top is still good. I didn't hit the top, Dad. I didn't hit the top. I just broke the little corner there. And it's like, are we, are we good? Are we good? I'm like, oh, you, you didn't break the top? Well, good. That's the part the rain comes in, right? Like, no, because in that moment, as a parent, it doesn't matter what part of the window you broke. If it rains, the whole window's broke. You get what I'm saying? It doesn't matter if you've only broken one part of the window. When there's a storm on the horizon, the window is either broken or it's not. No one walks into a building and be like, man, look at those beautiful partial windows, right? Like you either have a window or you don't. It's either intact or it's broken. Therefore, it either works or it doesn't. What James is saying here is, hey, if you've broken the law, the window's broken. And with a storm of sin, the carpet's going to get wet. And it doesn't work to stand before Jesus and say, yeah, but I only broke that bottom corner of the window. Because if you've broken part of it, the whole window's broke. And at this, at this juncture, James sets the landscape and the playing field very plainly for us. We have all broken the window. We are all guilty of breaking the entire law. Not because you did all of the things that you could have, but because you did that one thing. That one thing means I'm penalized by the whole thing? Yeah, you broke the window. James says, show no partiality. Don't dismiss this command. If I could put it another way, don't dismiss this command. It matters to God. It matters to the gospel. This is why racism matters to God. Because those are people that he loves, created in his image. And the church is designed to bring them in to be a beautiful picture of every tribe and every tongue worshiping in all of the glory and all of the color that God created. And it matters that we live into his design. Partiality is the problem. So James is saying not only does favoritism contradict the gospel, favoritism contradicts God's commands. Why? Because he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because he says, let us love one another. Why? Because he says, as much as you've seen me lay down my life, I want you to go and do likewise. And when you do this for the least of these, you do it for me. So do it for the least and the greatest and everyone in between. But favoritism contradicts what Jesus has called us to do. Love one another. And it's by our love that we're known. Again, his words ring and really sting. Verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts around it. 
If you're stereotyping, you're committing sin. If you're sharing that joke about a person of color or a person from a different country and they're driving, it's not funny, it's not a stereotype, it's not true because you've seen it a lot. It's sin. You've become judges with evil thoughts, he says. What does James say then? Speak and act, verse 12. Again, he's concerned that we'd hold to our faith, that we'd be mature, and our maturity would be in bloom. It would be there for the world to see. He says, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law. Because the problem is, you're willing to judge other people for their sin and their lifestyle choices and how they're choosing to go about their business, not realizing that you're under the same law. You broke the exact same window. And we don't get to pick and choose then. Only Jesus does. And he chose you. And because he chose you, you're called to go and love others as he loved you. Show no partiality because it's sin. And the same law that you uphold saying, man, they are sinners. They shouldn't be living that way. They shouldn't be doing those things is the same law that says you're a sinner. You shouldn't be doing those things. And by the law that you judge, James says, you will be judged. So mercy triumphs over judgment. Because mercy is God's embrace of people who deserved hell and have instead received heaven. Mercy has offered you something you absolutely don't deserve. And so go and show mercy, he says, that they might see my heart and my mercy towards you. James doesn't mince words. He just dives right in, and he keeps hitting, and he keeps exposing the weak parts of our hearts. He's desperate for us to actually live what we say we believe. And so the question is, what do we do with this? What do we do? I think it's pretty simple what we do. We, we need to live different. We need to live as people who don't see as the world sees and don't judge as the world judge. We need to live as people who have a warm welcome. And that's how I want to phrase the question. What's the takeaway in this? The takeaway is a simple question that I would ask of you. How warm is your welcome? How warm is your welcome? How warm is your welcome to the person who comes in and doesn't look like you and doesn't talk like you? How warm is your welcome when your son or daughter is dating someone and they bring someone home who looks just like you and listens to your favorite music? <laughs> yes, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and then how warm is your welcome when your son or daughter comes home from college and they bring someone home that looks nothing like you? How warm is your welcome then? Oh, but babe, babe, I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know, if I, I don't know if I can get on board with this. I don't know how I feel about this. This isn't how we raised him. How warm is your welcome? What's the warmth of your welcome to people of different political leanings than you? He hear me say this. Going off script, this is dangerous. 
I need to pray to Jesus for a moment. Hear me say this. If you share an invitation to our church on your Facebook page, and that invitation bears our signature words, you belong here, please do not, in your next post, share that anybody with a different political ideology than you doesn't belong here. And that's what we've communicated. And I talk with parents who don't understand why their kids go off to school and don't return to this church. And I'm like, I could tell you why they don't come back to this church. Because they're friends with you on Facebook. And that's not the world that they want. And it's not because we lack a singles ministry. It's because they don't like that rhetoric. And it doesn't jive with the gospel. It contradicts the gospel. When the gospel says that you belong here, not because you're worthy, not because you believe the right things, but rather in spite of the fact that you're not worthy, you don't believe any of the right things, but Jesus loved you enough to die on the cross for you. How warm is your welcome when you see someone with bumper stickers on their car that don't match the person that you voted for? How warm is your welcome when they challenge what you believe, but they share your love for Jesus. In our denomination, we say in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, charity, in all things, Jesus Christ. And the question is, do we believe that? That in all things, Jesus is supreme. And James says, if you believe that in all things Jesus is supreme, then hold to that faith and show no partiality and make your welcome warm because they will know us by our love. So, Father, convict our hearts on this, God. Because we, as your church, confess that when it comes to our welcome, when it comes to those who we are comfortable with, Father, we've so often failed and fallen short. Father, convict our hearts over those tiny moments in the grocery store where we stand in the checkout aisle and we look at the people around us and we draw snap judgments, not because we know their hearts, but because we see their clothing. Father, convict us of the way that we feel when we see someone new moving into our neighborhood and we see what they drive, or we see the furniture that they're pulling out of the truck, and we draw snap judgments about who they are or how they parent, God, forgive us. And teach us to live, Father, with the mercy that you had towards us. 
that in such great love for those who are steeped in sin, you sent your son, Jesus, to love us, to give his life for us, to rescue us from sin and death. God, teach us to love as you love, to see as you see, to be the church, God, that you have called us to be, that every color, every tongue, every tribe would find, Father, a home here because we believe Jesus is everything and everything else matters less than Jesus. Father, change our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to talk to someone about a decision you've made or let us know how God is moving through this series, visit nebc.ch contact. Be sure to stay connected with us throughout the week on social media or by subscribing to our weekly podcast. You can also stay up to date with the latest information about what's going on here at Northeast by subscribing to the Northeast News, our periodic newsletter that comes right to your inbox to keep you in the know. Thanks for listening to today's message, and we hope that you join us as we continue to make disciples on mission for Jesus Christ.